And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And our text this morning will be verses 14 through 23. In 1826, a French lawyer wrote in an essay, quote, Tell me what you eat, and I will tell you what you are. Nearly a century later, in the 1930s, the phrase, You are what you eat, emerged in the English language. And since that time, the diet craze has permeated American culture. The notion is, according to this phrase, that if you want to be fit and healthy, you need to eat good food. The quality of your eating is related to the quality of your living, as the phrase goes. Well, the French and Americans are not the first to have invented this kind of thinking. No, you can go all the way back to the time right after the Exodus in Leviticus chapter 11. And you can see dietary laws were given even then. So the Israelites at Mount Sinai also had pretty strict dietary restrictions. And they too would have said, you are what you eat. But they would have had a different meaning. Whereas many Americans in the diet craze, you are what you eat, is more about healthiness. For the Israelites, it was about holiness. And this is a matter that we will see here addressed once again by Jesus in His teaching. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And He called the people to Him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled... Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This ends the reading of the Word of God. To bring us up to speed and what's going on here in Jesus' teaching, what Mark is doing for us in chapter 7, we must understand that Jesus' Galilean ministry, the, the region where he's been spending the whole first part of Mark really in, is coming to an end. He has spent over a year ministering in this area, preaching the coming of the kingdom, and doing many signs and wonders. And Jesus would begin to go beyond the, the borders of Galilee into the, the land of the, of the Gentiles, beyond the house of Israel into Gentile territory. But before he sets out on the, the greater Gentile mission that he will do in, in a small scale, Mark records Jesus' engagement and teaching 
that he has here. And what he's doing is he's correcting the Pharisees and the scribes concerning their religious tradition. This is all of chapter 7, really, verses 1 through 23. But we must understand here something very important, that Mark is writing this gospel to a largely Roman Gentile audience, some 20 years or so removed from the actual events that are taking place here. And so Mark is writing this way, or this gospel, to this Gentile audience for a purpose. And so in the whole of chapter 7, what we see is that Mark is demonstrating by Jesus' teaching in verses 1 through 23, and then Jesus' actions in verses 24 through 37, he's showing the errors of first century Judaism, that's verses 1 through 23, and then he's showing in the latter parts of this chapter the scope of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, and it will be to the ends of the earth. And so what we have here in this first section of chapter 7 is that Jesus comes after the religious system of first century Judaism. And what Mark is trying to get his readers, and by virtue of his readers, us to understand here, is that to be a follower of Jesus does not mean following all the rules and regulations of Judaism. This is a very important thing for us to understand here. In verses 1 through 8, Jesus blasts them, For their legalism. What's the point that was made here in the first eight verses? He basically says this, dirty hands don't defile, legalism does. Adding to the law that which is not there. Well, then in verses 9 through 13, Jesus blasts them again for departing from the law. It's interesting, they add to what God's commands are in the first part, and they subtract from God's commands here in the second part. The point that Jesus is making here is that obedience doesn't defile. Rejection does. Now, Jesus once more in verses 14 through 23, as we will see, corrects another misunderstanding where the source of defilement comes. And it's simply this. Food doesn't defile. The heart does. And so consider here in verse 14 under the heading I supplied to you, the first one, the divine summons. We would read, He called the people to Him and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. First, I want you to observe the call. Observe the call. We read, And He called. Jesus now in this section is the one that's doing the gathering. If you were to look back in chapter 7, verse 1, it's the Pharisees that are doing the gathering and gathering around Jesus. Now the the script has been flipped. They wanted to gather because they wanted to teach and correct Jesus through their questioning. Now Jesus is the one who is doing the calling. Jesus is the one who's going to do the teaching here. So observe his call. Second, observe the crowd. And he called the people. Well, who is the people? Who is this audience that Jesus is calling? Well, we can see from the context here, it's going it's to consist of scribes and Pharisees, the religious people, the people that oppose him. But it's also anybody that's around. It's the disciples. It's the seekers. It's the skeptics. It's anybody within earshot, anybody who is willing to hear. He calls them to come and to hear. This is an important Note to understand that a mixed audience, no doubt that it is, will always result in a mixed reception. We will have that at the conclusion of this service even this morning. A mixed audience, 
will result in a mixed reception of the message. But the master's call here is not, for just, not, not just for the people that want to hear, but anybody who will come. And then notice here the commandment of verse 14. Hear me, all of you, and understand. Literally what Jesus is saying here in verse 14 is, give me your undivided attention. This is serious. We must understand the tone here is that of urgency. It is assertive. It is direct. Jesus is saying, clear your mind of all the distractions. Focus your ears to hear and to receive what I am about to tell you. Listen to me. Hear me, all of you. It's as though Jesus is saying, what you are about to hear is absolutely serious. You remember growing up when mom and dad would clear their throat? Or there was this, whatever it was in your home, but you knew that what was about to come was going to be a very serious statement. It might have been the look, whatever it was for you. They did that thing that commands your attention, and you knew that in that moment things were getting serious, all joking aside, and that if you didn't get serious, something serious was about to happen to you. So you maybe stand up a little straighter. You focus a little more intently. Dad means business. Mom's not playing around right now. Pay attention. It's as though Jesus is clearing his throat right now, and he is emphatically declaring, pay attention. I think this is a fitting first heading here of verse 14, because this is too is what we have been called to do. We are in the crowd. We are to heed the command. And Jesus' call to all of his people on this Lord's day is, hear me, all of you, and understand. This is the approach we should take every Lord's Day as we come to His Word, as we were to hear the Word of Christ preached in our midst. It is a divine summons. You have been divinely summoned to hear the Word of Christ. And then he goes again now in verse 15, follow along here, from his summons, he gives this divine statement. It is interesting, they hear this summons, the the, the crowd no doubt is quiet, silence has fallen upon them, everybody's given their attention, thinking maybe this profound sermon's going to come, it turns out to just be one sentence. Jesus teaches them in one sentence, and it is this divine statement, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. What is it that the Lord's saying here? What is it that Jesus is saying here? Well, we ask the what. We're going to get that answer because he's going to explain it for us. But maybe the question we should ask is not what is he saying, but why is he saying this? Why is it that Jesus feels that he needs to make this point here? Now remember, as I've hopefully established for you, the context of this whole passage and the preceding is that of false religion or of correcting errors in the religious system. Correcting extremes and correcting neglects. 
And so what is Jesus actually doing here in verse 15? He is going right at the ritualistic system in Judaism. He strikes at the core, no no doubt, of Jewish identity. By the first century, there were at least three main markers. At, At least three. There's some more. But three distinguishing markers of identity for a Jew. The first, that they were children of Abraham. So what this means is that they were children of the covenant, that they received the sign of the covenant, circumcision. That's a big deal for them. This is why Paul says to the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, that he says to them, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called in the flesh the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. So they would create this distinction You haven't received the sign of the covenant? We have, therefore we are better. So first, distinguishing identity that they were children of Abraham. Second was Sabbath keeping. This is the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Those who did anything at all besides save somebody from death on the Sabbath day were considered lawless men. If you would remember back in Mark, I believe, chapter 3, Jesus is addressed for doing good on the Sabbath. So you had the the ethnic identity of being children of Abraham, Sabbath keeping, and then the third distinguishing marker of Jewish identity was purity laws. Purity laws. Now a subcategory of the purity laws that they would follow is that of diet and diet restrictions. That's what you would find in Leviticus chapter 11. There are provisions and there are things that are forbidden. The types of animals you can and cannot eat, the kind of insects you can and cannot eat. I wouldn't eat any insects. Nonetheless, they're allowed to eat some. Maybe it's good protein. So this is what happened. The system became that if you want to be a good Jew, you would have to receive the sign of the covenant. You would have to strictly obey the Sabbath. And that you had to be faithful to all the purity laws. And then by doing this, covenant signs and purity laws, you would be a faithful Jew. Now this would have direct influence with your harmonious relationship with God and other cultic practices that they added to the mix. And so what we must understand here in this statement of verse 15 is that Jesus is speaking in terms of religious practices so that we don't take this verse and run in areas that we shouldn't. So let's ask the question, then why does he say this? Because the issue in his day, which is not so far removed from our context, we don't necessarily deal with the dietary laws, but nonetheless, the issue of his day is close to the issue in our day. The problem was is that the Jews majored on the minors and minored on the majors. That's the problem here. And so what Jesus is basically saying is that you place too much emphasis on what doesn't matter and not nearly enough on what does. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. And so Jesus here is speaking on true defilement. And the point that Jesus is making here and unpacks References back to verse 5 of chapter 7 when he's asked the question about defilement. He takes their word and flips it on them. When he's asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands 
And the answer is this from Jesus, because defiled hands don't make you unclean. A defiled heart does. You major on the minors and you minor on the majors, but let us be careful lest we think we cannot be guilty of this as well. When we place too much emphasis on external conformity and not internal transformation. And so this is the divine statement that Jesus makes in verse 15. Now consider with me verses 17 through 20 here and the explanation of this statement. We see why. Now we want to know what he means by this. So in verses 17 and 18, the disciples ask for clarity. What is it that you meant, Jesus, in this statement? According to Matthew's gospel, Peter's the one who speaks, and he speaks and he's representing all of the disciples and asking the question. And although Jesus expects them to understand, nonetheless, he is gracious to them in their ignorance and explains his statements. And it's important to note here what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is distinguishing between the material and the moral. He's creating this distinction here and says, whatever goes into a person from outside, follow along in your text, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. So what's being stated here? Food is not the issue. Dirty hands is not the issue. Ritual purity is not the issue. Your diet doesn't define you. That's what Jesus is saying. Basically, you aren't what you eat. Let me summarize it in this way. No amount of religious observance, ritualistic purity, conformity to a code, external observance, or anything of the like brings fellowship with God. That's the point being made here. Your standing with God cannot be earned, bought, or achieved through the effort and self-discipline. And so Jesus explains here, and literally, no pun intended, gets to the heart of the matter. The issue is not material and external. No, in fact, the issue that we all would be lumped into, it is one of moral and internal Let me just remind you, they majored on the minors and they minored on the majors. One commentator on this passage said, quote, when it came to the morals, Jesus' interpretation was stricter than that of most of his contemporaries. When it came to the cultic laws, Jesus, or Sabbath keeping and certain purity laws, Jesus' interpretation was comparatively lenient. Now, let us be careful here. Jesus is not contradicting Moses, and he's not looking and saying that, you you know, you shouldn't do these things. We must understand, in, in light of the covenants, Jesus is fulfilling the Mosaic covenant. Jesus has fulfilled all of them, and we are under the law of Christ, not under the law of Moses. Praise God for that. And that Jesus fulfilled the whole of the law. And what he's saying here is you are not restricted on certain foods. Thus he declared all things clean. I am thankful. I love bacon. If I was under the Mosaic law, I could not have bacon. 
That would be terrible. Nonetheless, we are thankful that Jesus comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so that we find the fulfillment all in Jesus. Think of your whole Bible this way. It's all funneling to him. From Genesis 3.15 all the way through, it's pointing to the seed of the woman. So the covenants are given, why? To point us to Christ, who in Jesus is the new and better Adam, who in Jesus is the fulfillment of Abraham's covenant, that in him, the offspring singular that Paul understands rightly when he writes to the Galatians, all the families of the earth will be blessed, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, Hebrews chapter 8. That the old is gone. That he's talking about Mosaic one. And so that we are under the law of Christ. Which in some senses is even more narrow. It's not a call to passivity or to a rejection. It's a call to understanding your Bible canonically. Jesus is the telos of the Bible. That's why he tells them on the road to Emmaus that all the scriptures, the law, the prophets... And the Psalms point to me. If you can read a passage of Scripture and you don't see Jesus there, you're not reading the Bible correctly. It is all about Him. If you can preach a sermon from the Old Testament and it would be fine in the synagogue, it's just a Jewish sermon. It's not a Christian sermon. We don't preach synagogue sermons. It is all about Christ. And so this is Jesus' point that He's making here in Matthew 23 23, he says this as he's calling out the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Here it is. You've majored on the minors. You've minored on the majors. You've neglected weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Again, he would tell them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is directly related to what he is saying here. Your external conformity does not supplement internal piety. But again, let us be humble lest we think we are not capable of having this spirit in some cases. There are those who will come to church every single week, all put together projecting a false image. They are quick to tell you that they are good every single week. I get jealous of those people that are good every single week. I'm not good every week. How's it going? Oh, great. It's good. Now, I understand most of the time that statement's made because you just don't want to talk about how bad it really is. But if you are good all the time, tell me your secret. Nonetheless, there are those that come put together projecting a false image. Year after year, they attend studies. They sit under preaching. Yet they're quick to point out the problems all around them and not realize that the greatest problems are the ones that are in them. Why? Because the focus is wrong. Five years, 10 years, 15, 25 years being in a church, no personal growth in holiness. Sure, maybe growth in knowledge. You sit under enough sermons, you can retain factual information. Why does this happen? 
We know people like that. And sometimes we have to ask the question, is it I, Lord? But why does this happen? Because it's a failure to understand and apply verse 20 here of this passage. It's what comes out of a person is what defiles him. So what does Jesus mean here? Let's define our terms about defilement. He doesn't mean what they're saying in verse 5. 7-5, no. Jesus is not talking about ritualistic uncleanliness. Jesus is talking about moral impurity. He's speaking of moral corruption. Quite literally, this word means pollution or desecration. If your heart is unclean, you are unclean. He says what comes out of. What, What does he mean by what comes out of a person? This is actions and attitudes that Jesus is speaking of. You can see that in the list that he gives. Brothers and sisters, what comes out of us serves to reveal what is inside of us. The hands only go where the heart has already been. The tongue only goes where the heart has already been. The mind only goes to where the heart has already been. This is a sobering passage. And this is his explanation It's not what goes into a person that defiles him. It's what comes out of him. And lest we have any ambiguity here, Jesus gives us a lot of specifics. He gives the divine example here, and he puts together his list. You'll find lists like this throughout your New Testament. Paul does it. But Jesus gives us a list here, divine example of what he means of the defilement of the heart. What comes out of a person What is this? Look with me now in verses 21 through 23 and understand this. Wickedness and uncleanliness, they come from within, not without. First, he would say here, evil thoughts. What does he mean by this? Wicked self-dialogue. You ever have that conversation in your mind about someone else? not-so-kind thoughts towards another. Wicked self-dialogue. What is this? Thinking ill of others, judging motive, assuming the worst in others, having a hermeneutic of skepticism when when engaging with other people. When in doubt, always err on the side of charity. That's what love believes all things means. So, evil thoughts, wicked self-dialogue coming from, come, coming from within. Sexual immorality. I might not need to define this. The root word, porneia. Pornography, engaging in the act, any form. Even in the form of crude joking. This is the defilement from within. Third, he says, theft. I think, oh, well, I don't steal. Shoplifting? What about being lazy on the job? Not being super accurate on your timesheet? Not rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? Taxes? Plagiarism? Stealing sermons? Intellectual property? Theft takes on a variety of forms. Murder? Hating one another? Rage? Wishing death upon someone? Remember, Jesus tightened the, 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 the understanding and the interpretation when it came to morals. The teaching was, if you didn't kill anybody, you're not guilty of this. Oh, no, no, but the Lord says, but I say to you, 
Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment, is guilty of murder. This anger, this this wishing death, this hatred of another person, it is as though you are killing that person in your life every day. And really, that's just killing you. From murder comes adultery. A husband cheating on his wife, a wife cheating on her husband physically, emotionally. Again, Jesus tightens this one up again. You say, well, I haven't done that. Well, Matthew Chapter 5, verse 28, But I say to you that everybody who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I think we could stop right now. And if these don't describe us, or if these do describe us, it doesn't matter how faithful we practice religion. It doesn't matter how strict we are in the things that we do. We are defiled. This is what defiles a person according to Jesus. But let us continue and heap it on. He says coveting, obsessing over some, something else that somebody has, wishing that you had it. Coveting is really shaking your fist at God. You have not given me enough. I am not comfortable in your sovereignty. Your providence isn't good enough for me. I want more. I want what he has. I want what she has. Oh, their life looks so put together. I just want that life. It is a lack of contentment. And brothers and sisters, we all will struggle with this. Not being thankful for God's provision. Remember, the grass is always greener on the other side, so you think. Because there's more fertilizer on that side. Next, he says, wickedness. This is what comes out of a person. It is wickedness. This is malicious acts. This is evil deeds. This is, if you would think, the first part of the list here are all sins that can occur in the mind. Now it's going to take action. Wickedness. These are deeds. Finding pleasure in other people's failures. That is wickedness. Deceit. Falsehood. Quite literally what he means here is to bait, to entrap, fraud, pretending to be something you're not. Sensuality, lack of self-control, debauchery, envy. Well, this one hurts. Quite literally, this means having an evil eye. Having an eye out for someone else. Jealousy is the fear of losing what one has. Envy is the displeasure of seeing someone else have something. It is to look at another brother or sister with contempt because of what they have. Slander. Literally, this means blasphemous talk against God. But seeing the way that Jesus has structured this list of vices... And it's, it's between envy and pride. I think we can take this understanding also in the human relationships. Defamation of character directed against another person. That's what slander is. But sometimes we're, we've gotten better at that, so we don't actually say it. We just hold it here. It's still defilement, is it not? Pride, thinking of yourself better than you are. False humility is pride. 
False modesty is pride. And ultimately, foolishness. As he finishes his list here in verse 22. Foolishness. Which you could take that to be the summary of this whole list. It is absolute foolishness. And he tells us in verse 23, all these evil things come from within. So if you want to say, I want to get away from this. I want, I want to get as far away from this defilement as possible. I'm going to take my life savings. I'm going to buy an island. I'm going to fly out there. And I'm going to rid myself. I'm going to take a Bible, and that's all I need. And I will live this monastic lifestyle. Here's the problem. You're going to bring you with you wherever you go. You can't get away from you. So changing your context is not going to make things better. Running away from problems is not going to make things better because we bring the problems. Because heart, the heart is the issue. And to divorce yourself from the heart is to stop living. So if that isn't a solution, what is? You can't, if, you can't, if you read this list and you are not thinking, oh no. I am unclean. I have a defiled heart. It doesn't matter how good I can project myself on the outside, but within. You know, I think about the little children. They don't have the restraint that we do as we get older. So they, so they, 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 they lash out and they show the wickedness from within. We get better, so we, do it. we hide it. But it's still there until it is dealt with. But we end here and Jesus doesn't give us a solution. Interesting. So the question I think we should ask is, what about us? What can we take of Jesus' corrective teaching here? First and foremost, we must recognize our need. My heart is defiled. My heart is unclean. Left to myself, I will die in that state. And I will give an account to the judge of all the earth. So here it is. If we ever want to be right with God, remember, it's not what you eat. You aren't what you eat. If we ever want to be right with God, we must have a new heart. And we're talking spiritually. I'm not talking literally here. This was Nicodemus' issue that he had in John chapter 3. He thinks Jesus is talking literally, and Jesus says, no, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You need a new heart. Ezekiel 36, I will take the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will give you a heart that will cause you to walk in my ways. I will give you this. I will put my spirit within you. God does all the I will statements because he must will it or it won't happen. We must have a heart transplant, spiritually speaking. The theological term, we must be born again. Nothing less than new birth will do. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Cannot. Ability. They lack the ability. It's not that they may not. It's not permission. You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter into heaven unless you have been born again. This defiled heart, in and of its natural state, will never enter into heaven. First, we must recognize our need in and of myself there is no good thing second what should we do we must receive god's gift we must receive god's gift we have all been defiled we all know this statement is true 
There's none righteous, no, not one. I guarantee that in this list, I described something of your life. And I say that because I know me. There is none righteous, no, not one. Jesus is the only one with clean hands and a pure heart who goes to the cross. And, and, and there on that cross, He suffers for the defiled. The only one who is not guilty of anything on this list is the one who is making this list, who is giving this list. He is the one with clean hands and a pure heart who goes to the cross to suffer and die for the defiled people. Jesus never died for a perfect person. And in his death, he takes upon himself the punishment for the defiled. So when this, you read this list, it is as though when Christ hangs upon the cross, the Father treats him as the one with evil thoughts, though he is without sin. That he bears the penalty for the sexually immoral, for the murderer and for the adulterer, for the coveting one and the wickedness and deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's what Jesus does when he hangs upon the cross, dying for those people, for their sins, that they would be paid for, that they would be blotted out. This is the gift of God. And the question we must ask of each and every one of us, is he your substitute? Did Christ die for you? Has your heart been made clean by the blood of the Lamb? Is He your righteousness? Is He your life? Can you say honestly that I am forgiven because He was forsaken? And so because of that, Jesus Christ is the supreme object of my affection. My love is for Him because He took my defiled heart, sprinkled it clean, and forever I am clean because of Jesus. Even when I sin, I am clean because of Jesus. So I do not want to sin anymore. I want to run away from what nailed my Savior to the tree. Receive God's gift. And how do we do this? Through repentance and renewal. Even as believers, we understand that there will be times that this list describes us. Not characteristically, but there will be times when we will fall into a negative pattern. We will fall into behavior that we know we should not do. We're not sinning against the law. We're sinning against love. And when we fall into this negative pattern, these sinful patterns, we need to run back to the cross. Remember, your sins are not meant to haunt you, but to humble you, according to Alistair Begg, who said that. But this is the important thing we must understand. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is more grace in God than there is water in the ocean. You can constantly go back to him. He is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sins, but he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. We must repent and confess our sins. And from repentance, we need renewal. We need to renew our minds by feasting on God's word with God's people in God's presence. Our prayer should be the one of David's. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And finally, 
remember. Much of the Christian faith is a call to memory. Remember, even as Sinclair had stated earlier, we need to remember where we came from. We need to constantly remember. And also remember that external conformity is no substitute for internal purity. It's not what goes in to a person that defiles him, but what comes out. You aren't what you eat, but what comes out of you reveals what is inside you. Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus Christ to you? It is probably, no, it is definitely, the most important question you will ever answer on this side of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, we recognize that we are guilty. We are sinful. And we are in need of a Savior. Lord, we are thankful that Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is now seated at your right hand. Lord, And so in light of this, may we lay aside every sin that clings so closely. I pray for those among us now that are living under the burden and bondage of their sin, carrying the load upon their back. Lord, I pray that through this message and through these pe- the people of God here, that they might see forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. That the burden of sin would be released that new life would be granted, repentance and renewal would occur, and that all of us would run to the cross, even this morning, to find strength and help and grace. That is why you came, and you suffered and you died in our place. We thank you, Jesus, for these truths. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.